Hey everybody, hey everybody, how are you guys doing? I'm Kellen Fabry and this is Venture Europe. Venture Europe is a series of conversations with entrepreneurs and investors where we discuss about the strategies, tactics, frameworks and failings that they have used and experienced during their journey. My guest today is Roland Munger, co-founder and partner at Early Bird. With over 1.5 billion euro under management, 8 IPOs and 30 trade sales, Earlybird is one of the most established and active venture capital firms in Europe, having made investments in formidable companies like UiPath, N26 and Forto among others. Founded in 1997, Earlybird invests in all development and growth phases of technology companies and has grown to several autonomous, dedicated and specialized teams focusing on different geographies and sectors. During this episode, we discuss about the inception of Early Bird, the importance of having team members with different points of view, and how the assessment of startups has changed over the last 20 years. Please enjoy this excellent discussion with Roland. Thank you very much for taking the time. I'm quite excited, actually, to uh, to discuss with you about Early Bird. As I also mentioned in the email, it kind of seems that Early Bird is an overnight success. But looking um, at your background, you guys have been working on it for the last 23 years. I would imagine that a lot of learnings and a lot of hard work was put behind it. So would love to, you know, drill down into the learnings that you guys have um, have gathered so far. Maybe we can paint a picture for the audience. So it's 1998. Google was just incorporated. The main browsers were Netscape and Internet Explorer. And the MP3 player was just released for the first time to the public in Japan. And at the same time, you and with some of your co-founders, you decided to start Early Bird. Could you please walk us through what was the VC and tech environment back then? And what was the trigger? to start early bird. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, it was quite an exciting time for, for us and, and, and for me. Maybe I say it right from the start, there was very, very little VC in Europe, right? So uh, there were only a few VCs. Some of them actually still exist today. So for instance, North Zone was founded in 1996 in the Nordics, of course. France already had, uh, you know, two uh, almost long-standing uh, VCs, Sofinova and Partech, that were founded in the 70s and 80s, respectively, and, and that's kind of an exception. In Germany, there was TBM, founded in the 80s also, but that was sort of the only oldie there. And, and then there was Wellington Partners, founded in 1991. And in the UK, I mean, if you think about, you know, long-standing VCs, Amadeus Capital Partner comes to mind. But that was, uh, you know, founded in 1997, right? So uh, not a lot of venture capital. And then also around that time, um, what was also exciting is all major Europe, European stock exchanges created uh, high-tech growth stock trading venues, you know, such as the AIM in the UK, in the UK 95, uh, Nouveau Marché in France, 1996, Neuer Markt in Germany, 97. But, but if you looked at the listings at that time, actually almost all of them were not related to VC-backed companies. And no wonder, because there was hardly any VC, right? I was still in a startup in 97, also not VC-backed. And that startup had just listed on NASDAQ uh, through a reverse merger. But I was itching to do something different and was, was introduced to Rolf Matisse, who was about to launch 
a VC firm together with Christian Nagel and, and later also with Hendrik Brandis. Now, all, all three of them had private equity experience, but I had startup tech experience. So I was, was sort of complementary and that was a good fit. Uh, now, looking at the rest of the environment, on, on the back of, of this huge Netscape IPO success in 1995, I mean, that was, that was really, I think, one of the major, major events uh, for the industry in the 90s. On the back of that, a, a record of 265 VC-backed companies went public in 1996, right, uh, in, in the year after, right? So that was sort of almost like the, the, the shot to start the race, if you will. But, you know, even the biggest IPOs, you know, most of them we don't remember anymore. You know, companies like Excite or Vocaltech, but also one still well-known name was among them, and that's Yahoo. So look at that, that situation. And obviously from, uh, from Europe, we looked at that and, and investors in Europe also wanted to be part of that action. And obviously, uh, so did we. Got it. So, so it was a combination of seeing a lot of IPOs, but also then the public markets accepting more growth startups. Yes. I mean, on the one hand, obviously, you see what's possible in the US. And then you think about it, you see that there is you know, interesting stuff being created in Europe. And the one thing you worry about is, well, can we exit these things? But then you know, with uh, uh, with with uh, the Euro the European exchanges also opening segments that that might be conducive for VC backed companies, uh, there was an opportunity. Got it. Do you remember actually the first investment that that uh, you have made uh, part of Early Bird? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> uh, my my first investment from an Early Bird fund was a pre seed investment uh, in in March nineteen ninety nine in a company that we wrote off a year later. They had an, an amazing core technology based on collaborative and distributed multi-agent architectures so or really techy stuff. And, and one could imagine applications in logistics and, and supply chain management. So uh, um, I had a friend at Amazon and, and Amazon eventually evaluated their technology in, and actually was impressed, but, but didn't buy. So we had to realize the company was too much on the, on the bleeding edge and... Uh, we didn't have the faintest idea when it would produce revenue, so we, we couldn't continue to back them. And, and so the year later, we, you know, we wrote them off. I'm curious, how does the dynamic between you and the partners worked out since you had some startup experience, but then maybe the partners that you started, they had private equity experience. And in private equity, it's quite a lot about data and analyzing a lot of data, whereas like maybe the first investment that you made, like the pre-seed is more in the technology and in the team and potential, so more in the vision. So how did you guys manage to decide how to assess an investment at, at pre-seed and how did that assessment change over time? I think we, we weren't too far away actually from, from our philosophy or, or the, the way we were looking at opportunities. And you're right, if you're, if you're in private equity, there are, there are other things you, you, you're looking at. In fact, you, you have lots of data, you have balance sheets, you have P&L and other things. The good thing about my partners was they, they also had something on top of uh, private equity experience. So, so Hendrik was, uh, was actually running McKinsey New Venture in Germany. So McKinsey's efforts to uh, work with the startup scene. He had that, that particular uh, window into how startups work and what's important there. 
so he could differentiate you know from uh, private equity and Rolf actually ha had worked in in software development and uh, you know done that in the US uh, done that in in Germany and and also had his unique uh, view into into smaller companies and 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 similar for for Christian so the good thing was I didn't have to deal with people that came uh, with a private equity mindset um, actually those three wanted to get away from the private equity mindset and and were mentally prepared to do that so um that that's why it was actually not such a such a such a big problem there got it so it it was not necessarily to have a change of mental models but it was already there because they were accustomed with working with with startups if you look at the first meeting that you had like for for one of the funds of early bird and if you look at a first meeting that maybe someone in the team has today how do you assess at pre-seed do you look at the same things like what are some of the learnings that that you gathered during the years If I look back at how uh, how my first meeting went, um, and and sort of what strikes me today is that uh, a, a lot of these these meetings were introduced by corporate finance advisors. So obviously they also wanted in on the all of this uh, tech startup action, and and many founders were pers persuaded to uh, to let uh, uh, advisors manage their fundraising. And and you could argue that that made sense at that time, right? Because again, there was very little venture capital, and and most founders have never met uh, a VC before. So this first meeting was was highly structured, you know, almost a formal agenda, completely facilitated by the advisor. But nevertheless, despite this, this somewhat rigid approach, uh, in that first meeting, the founders and I were, were able to make a, make a personal connection. And, and then we could agree to keep the advisor out of the equation for the next few meetings. And, and then we had uh, you know, quite an intensive sequence of at least five more meetings. I don't remember exactly how many before we signed a term sheet and then, uh, then went very quickly through due diligence and, and final agreements. By the way, that that's quite unusual today. I wanted to say that I just wanted to uh, to comment on on that, and and then like, how do you do it today, and how did that change? And also, I would assume that the way that probably you are doing it in the last twelve months is also quite different than how you were doing it maybe even like two years ago. I do think that the the market now is. It's at an all-time high. But if you take uh, on average, let's say for the last 12 months, like how did the process change uh, from, let's say, 20 years ago? Today, obviously, most entrepreneurs know enough about venture capital and VCs that, that they know what they're getting themselves into uh, in the first meeting. I must admit, I, all, I also learned a, a thing or two that I'm, I'm better prepared. And I guess also it's important to, to note that everybody has, has their own way of doing these things, right? What's important to me looking uh, looking at companies uh, when I first first meet them is actually to see how how they run it, right? I let the founders drive the meetings because I I don't just want to get a, you know answers to a defined set of questions. It's more interesting for me to see what's important to them, right? What are their priorities and and how they deal with this sort of important, stressful and uncertain situation uh, of a first meeting. But let me also point out there's one important thing that hasn't changed, right? And that's this personal connection that you need to achieve and ideally need to achieve in the first meeting. In the end, you want to build mutual trust over the process of meeting the founders and then coming coming to an agreement. And if you cannot build that personal relationship, that's hard to do. So what else has changed? 
maybe in the in the kind of things we're we're looking at, not not really much. For us, the most important thing to look at is is still the team, and and I think that that, that has been true for for all those more than twenty years. Entrepreneurial potential and willingness to learn is was always more important than experience. Character is important too, right? The ability to lead and assert, but also to be ready to check one's ego at the door before you go to work. Also the right motivation. It's nice to have the prospect of wealth to get you going, but it's not enough to sustain you and give you the energy through many challenging years ahead. Uh, so, so we want to see a passion for something beyond just money. And, and of course, uh, like everybody else will tell you, there's this whole bit on large markets, customer lock-in, and et cetera. Uh, and I guess almost every VC has written a blog about that, so I don't <laughs> have to repeat here. <laughs> and, and now I'm getting, I guess, to, to your point, there is one thing that has, that has changed. With more money competing for relatively few opportunities, deals are getting done very quickly now. So I would say corners are cut. Uh, founders don't have to go through multiple iterations of meetings like you know, that first one to get a term sheet. And that may look like an advantage to founders, but I'm not so sure. B because in the end, you know, there's less time for dating. Uh, so both sides are not really getting to know each other that well as before. And, and I would argue that this creates more of a risk for founders than for VC funds. Uh, in the end, we, we funds have a portfolio of opportunities. So if there's a problem with a relationship, you know, it's it's bad, but it's not catastrophic. The founders just have one opportunity, their company, right? So avoiding a bad investor relationship should be more important to founders. I, I completely agree with, with you on that. You also mentioned the importance of building mutual trust starting from the first meeting. And when things are just so fast-paced, I don't think you have the time to build the mutual trust that you need to actually support each other or work together towards a great outcome. I would like to go a little bit more granular in something that you said that I find it very interesting. You said that you you want to let them run the meeting, like the first meeting, because you don't want to constrain them with some maybe questions that would bring some bias. And I think that that's, that's very interesting. So what do you think it's a good meeting planner and a bad meeting planner also taking into account what you said about leading and asserting oneself, the passion, but then also at the same time, uh, leaving their ego at the door? So how, how would you see a meeting where you would be impressed by an entrepreneur where he or she takes in consideration all of the above? There are many ways how I could answer that question. I have been impressed by very, very different ways of running meetings. So it's very hard to give just one, one set of guidance. I, I guess it all boils down again to being able to communicate well, to be authentic. Without being authentic, you cannot build a relationship to, you know, be open and, um, you know, be, be willing to, uh, you know, share both the good and the bad and the ugly, and then, you know, provide the opportunity to continue the meeting rather than just saying, hey, you know, this is the deal. Uh, are you in or not? Start a discussion, you know, uh, create an opening, not an end in, uh, in, a, in a first meeting. And you know, what you do with that, you create a desire and a wish on the other side, on the side of the VC. Hey, I want to spend more time on this. Is it interesting? I mean, there are certainly a few things that might be difficult, but I'm really looking forward to explore those. Got it. Got it. And are there any questions that you see that work very well in 
finding more about the entrepreneur's motivation or character uh, or passion? I would assume that if you want a good answer or if you, you really have to focus on asking the right question and good questions. And I would assume that by now you, you are a master because probably you have asked questions for the last uh, 23 years. Like, do you see that there are some, some questions that you can always ask and reuse to get to know the entrepreneur better? I, I must say, I don't believe in that at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and I don't have to, right? Because you're right. I mean, things go very fast these days, but we still meet more than once. And uh, what's more important than just having one particular interaction on one particular subject or around one particular question in one meeting is, is sort of how the whole thing evolves over two or three meetings, right? So uh, it, it's, it's very interesting to see, you know, you have a first meeting, you meet again, how, is, how are the founders behaving then? W what have they taken away from the last meeting? And so one of the most important things, and if, if, you, if you force me to simplify it, let me simplify it in the following way. The three potential reactions I can have in a second or third meeting. One is I'm disappointed, right? I'm saying, okay, they, they haven't really taken away a, a lot. They, I would have expected more. My expectations are met. That's the second one. And I go like, okay, you know, this is exactly as I expected. But sometimes, and those are the really good ones, is they wildly exceed my expectations. And they're, they're taking away much more than I would have thought. In a way, they're they are understanding our line of thinking and they're projecting it ahead of us. I don't know how, if that comes across, but more than just, you know, having a question and then the right answer, this is about a discovery process where we get to know each other. And the better and faster we can do that and the more that emerges from that, the better. Got it. No, it's um, it's clear. I would, and I know that this is uh, a little bit outside of the agenda, but I think this is quite interesting. Yeah. I was kind of wondering if you have an example of an entrepreneur or a team. You don't have to give names, but th that they exceeded the expectations. So let's say you had the first meeting. You discussed about a market or the market dynamics. You pointed out some some risks, maybe or some opportunities. And then, like in the in the second meeting, they will come prepared with that, or like just to just to have an example for our audience. There's one particular situation, and, it, and it's not unique, actually. That particular situation happens more often. We discuss a business model, and, and we, during the first or second meeting, we find out that business model has, has certain limitations, and we're arguing over the size of the market. And then, you know, the next time we meet, maybe our expectation would have been that the, the founders say, okay, but, you know, this can be applied also in this industry or that industry. But... You know, and it also depends on whether it's technically possible, right? But, uh, you know, I, I remember a very successful entrepreneur who then came back and said, you know, I've explained, you know, this software to you and the applicability to it, you know, as an application. But you know what? It's actually a platform for AI. So if you think about all the kind of things that are being developed now in AI, many of these things can actually be slotted into, into our product. And our product can be used as a delivery platform for AI because the problem with AI is, and uh, and I, th then I think that's still the case for many AI products, that you know it's great technology, but it's not productized. It, you, it, it requires a lot of consulting, requires a lot of tailoring to the needs of the companies, and you know the I think the the, the great insight here was to completely rethink the role that his product could play 
not just as an application, but as a delivery vehicle to productize future AI. And hmm. that was really striking and, uh, and, 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 and showed the kind of capability, visionary capability, but that, that was also realistic uh, that that founder had. Got it. Got it. One more question that actually popped up that it's outside of the agenda and feel free to, um, to pass and then we can go back to, uh, to the agenda. But I was wondering if you remember the first meeting with uh, Daniel from UiPath. My first meeting with Daniel from UiPath was in Munich. And uh, maybe I have to take a few steps back. Uh, my partner, Dan Lupu, actually built the relationship with Daniel. And he was also the one uh, in charge of, of, uh, of UiPath from our side. So, you know, I got to know about UiPath before I uh, met Daniel. And eventually I met Daniel in Munich uh, when we were introducing him to uh, one of our strategic investors, uh, a large company that had showed some interest in, in the concept of RPA. You know, we spent half a day with six executives from that company and Daniel uh, in a room. Now, I, I had been on calls with Daniel before and, uh, you know, he had struck me as being very technical, extremely competent, very technical and, uh, and you know, typical technical founder, you know, who still had to, to learn how to communicate well. But, you know, once we were in this meeting, the way he handled the room was just fabulous. And, uh, and suddenly I could tell, you know, if he wants, he can actually do it. He, he can actually communicate perfectly. Uh, and that, uh, you know, f further reconfirmed, uh, you know, my our decision, my but my my personal position as well. Uh, that that that's that's a great investment. Super interesting. Actually, this is something that we recently discussed: is the communication. So how do you assess a founder from Digital East, where I know is also your, your home now, like in the Digital East, you meet with probably a lot of brilliant founders from, from Eastern Europe and Turkey. I would assume that their communication style is not as direct as the Digital West or like within the West side of Europe. Like, how do you go beyond that? So in the case of Daniel, actually, you had him present in like in a in a room where you kind of realize okay if he's very engaged and passionate then he can indeed do he can improve his communication style certainly say you're absolutely right i mean this is uh i i don't like generalizations but as a tendency many western european or even more u.s founders seem to be sort of more polished or, or, or may, maybe have practiced more uh, effective business communication, maybe even you know, gone through MBA programs and learned it there, or uh, you know, having having you know, having worked in sales and marketing uh, uh, for uh, you know, for American companies, and obviously uh, you know, many founders we meet haven't had that opportunity. Um, so, two things to that: one, for us, especially for me, not coming from the region. The first thing was to step back and say, what are my expectations and and what might be my biases, right? And that, that's one of the hardest things, right? You don't know where your blind spots are. And uh, the point is you will always have some biases, even if you think you don't, and you have the best possible attitude. So I, I, I made that clear to me. And I also asked my partners who are from the region to help me with that and 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 point it out to me and not not stay silent so i would not fall into the trap of of meeting someone and just because that person didn't communicate the same way someone from the uk would i would sort of devalue that yeah 
That's, that's the first thing. Then the second thing that obviously is helpful is then experience, right? I mean, you, you meet people, you, uh, you, you remind yourself of your commitment to being unbiased and, and you, know, you have partners that help you with that. But then you, you go through those experiences and you see how those, those founders develop and that reinforces your own experience, right? And it gives you a much better confidence in your own ability. I, I hope that has happened with me. Yeah, so actually, we we discussed about this at a at um unconscious bias. Yeah, it was training. Uh, so we we kind of discussed uh, about gender, but then also the point of meeting entrepreneurs that are from a region that maybe English is not as uh, often used. Will you have a bias? So so it's very interesting actually to to hear you um, talk about it and the way that actually you guys overcome uh, that bias. A lot of people see the success of Early Bird today as an overnight success, or at least like for me that I'm that I'm kind of new in the in the ecosystem. But you guys have been around for the last 23 years and a lot of hard work behind that. So if you would look at the most important learnings um, across the years, what are the most important learnings in one, making good investments? And two, actually building a successful, long-lasting organization as Early Bird. Well, I mean, if you allow me uh, to first pick up on the notion of overnight success. Yes. <laughs> in fact, there have been many of these overnights from uh, 2004, where we uh, had our first major exit, uh, the, the trade sale of a company called Element 5 to Digital River, uh, after this very long nuclear winter that the tech industry experienced uh, after the year 2000, then three major IPOs in 2005, and a series of trade sales and IPOs thereafter. This impression of an overnight success, I guess there, there is some truth to the statement. We also had to see that, you know, in the way we were dealing with communications, we have not always been perfect. We are encouraging our early stage company to focus on product and customers and revenue and not to seek the limelight too early. So maybe we've we've have drunk a little bit too much of our own Kool-Aid but eventually we realized uh, you know we were weak in in that area and uh, only more recently did we think and act uh, systematically about how we present ourselves but i'm digressing uh, going to your question about the roots of our success and important things in investing there are you know, all kinds of things that you that I could talk about, and all of them are important, right? Hiring the right people, having the right investment hypothesis, you know, making sure you have operational excellence, culture, everything. But I want to don't want to talk about each and every one of them. Um, I think there's one thing that I would like to talk about, and that's especially important for equal partnerships uh, that you know that many VCs claim to be, and, and you know, we are a partnership, right? So not, not hierarchical organizations that are led by a de facto CEO and, and have a more or less clear chain of command. And what I'm talking about is, uh, is the cohesion, is the, is the balance between cohesion and, and autonomy, uh, maintaining the right distance between the partners in your firm. And, and what do I mean by that? If, if there's no one to call the shots and there are lots of strong personalities around the table, uh, it's not really easy to come to decisions, right? Let alone good ones. Mm. And this is especially true for investment decisions. You know, what can go wrong, right? If, if you are too close to each other, both in terms of personal relationships, you just enjoy each other, right? As well as professional background, you're all coming from McKinsey and frame of mind. There's the risk of groupthink. And in, in such a situation, 
you know, you're all very happy and self-confident and very rosy about your partners and all, all great, but uh, important decisions or issues are not really properly debated or, or challenged. And then the partner teams get stuck in a sort of self-construction of reality. As, you know, some scholar once referred to this, to this as satisfactory underperformance. So that, that's, that's also the, the, the one risk. The other risk, if you're getting too much on the autonomous side, you're in danger of overestimating your contributions and capabilities relative to your partners, or you even start to optimize yourself at the expense of the partnership. And then things become political. You know, horse trading starts with other partners to get your deal through the investment committee. Uh, you try everything to minimize or avoid discussions or challenges by other team members. Looking at those two things, unfortunately, there is no comfortable steady state in between. So there are these two forces that are pulling you in either direction as a partnership. And, and many even successful VCs don't survive as equal partnerships in the long term for these reasons. Um, so I think that that's why I'm making this particular point, because you know, it's something you, you cannot ignore. And if I'm looking at early birds so far, we've been pretty good at recognizing and maintain, maintaining this balance. And you know, we've had our challenges and we've, we've done it fairly well, both in the initial years when we were one partner team. And now that we have several autonomous fund partnerships under one early bird roof, I think we're, we're, we're doing it again fairly well. But maybe if I add just, may add just one more point, uh, I would even go further and say that Finding the right distance is not just important for VC partnerships, but it's also important for the partnership between founders and VCs. So don't get too close, but also don't stray too far. Now, this is very interesting. It almost, it seems like a rule from the physics books, right? Um, yes. But I do agree with you. And I like the way that you phrase it, no comfortable steady state between cohesion and autonomous. So you always, like, it's almost like a, a dance. So when it comes to close, you have to maintain the distance. But when it's, when the distance is too far, you have to focus on the cohesion of the group. So how do you, how do you maintain the balance? How do you notice that the distance is increasing or when do you notice that the cohesion is too high? Yeah, I, I guess it's all a matter of the awareness and attitude everybody has. And I think it really requires everyone because if you have just one or two persons sort of falling into one of these traps, there's a dynamic. And, and that probably makes it easier for smaller partnerships to remain equal partnerships um, um, as a, just as a corollary. I think there, there are very few formal things you can do about it. I mean, you can you could try to remind yourself at every partner meeting about that, but that you know, I, I don't think such a ritual really makes a lot of sense. So it's really more about you know, each and every one being aware of these things. And so far that has worked. I cannot look into the future. I just hope we can, we can, we can be good at that in the future as well. Got it. Well, I mean, like if, if, if the awareness is indeed on keeping the balance and everyone has an intrinsical motivation to maintain the balance, I think uh, there's definitely a good culture to maintain the balance. Um, I wanted actually to drill down in some examples, but maybe it's, it's getting a little bit too specific. But if you would see that the cohesion is too high and everyone has this type of group thinking, do you do something about it? Uh, or do you remember the last time that that happened or vice versa? If you see that the distance is too, is too big, someone notices it and, and then you try to do something about it. 
Right. So, so I mean, maybe, maybe there is one thing you can do, and that is when you form the partnership, make sure you're not clones of each other, right? Or you just do it because you're the best bodies and you, you want to work with the best bodies as well, not just play with them. That's, and, and, but, but I think that that's usually not the problem when partnerships get founded. They're, they're usually founded by professional, reasonable people that have different backgrounds. And so you have the, the right kind of raw materials for that. And, and because that's the case, because you have different personalities, different backgrounds, you know, if, and, and, and you're, you're, you're not all, you, do, you don't you don't have all your best friends in in the partnership there there is a certain distance already and uh, you know if things go really well and and you're bonding more strongly um, you know one of you recognizes that and can then you know maybe put a little bit of salt into the discussion right uh, and start to challenge um you know some some dear convenient uh, consensus Mm. Uh, just, just to make sure that everybody, you know, wakes up and says, wait a minute, are we, what have we done here? Right. So, and, and we, we've had that, right. And all of us have played that role in, in waking everyone up to, to that kind of situation. So that's, that's what you can do. And then, you know, if, if you're getting too far off on a tangent and, uh, and, uh, too autonomous, um, I, I haven't seen that a lot, but but again, then you can then then you can have a conversation around that. And if you if you're open and honest to each other, I think that's also a possibility. Uh, you know, assuming all of you still want to continue the partnership. No, interesting. Only now, like when you're kind of um, saying it, it kind of makes sense because the more closer you get to someone, the more you will have a bias to confirming what they say. Yes. So the most buddy you are with someone, the less likely you are actually to challenge their way of thinking, hence doing a disfavor of the process of decision-making when looking at an investment opportunity. Alrighty, so um, thank you very much for going in such a detail on the topic. So now, now in closing, I just have a couple of uh, questions. Three things that you recommend entrepreneurs pitching early bird uh, should have sorted out. Uh, the answer to the question is not unique to early bird. And, and, and again, like before, there are many things, not just three that are interesting or important and that, that founders should have sorted out. But uh, I'm okay to pick three that go beyond uh, maybe usual things like market, customer pain point, customer persona, and so on. And, and there may be a little bit sort of higher level. So, so first... Be ready to tell a compelling story. You know, if, if you're preparing your pitch to a VC, you know, you can find lots of presentation templates online for your perfect pitch. And, and you can, you know, you can go through all of these points, each nail each base, each chapter of the pitch, but still fail your communication because you're not connecting the dots and you're not telling one cohesive and compelling story throughout your whole pitch. So guess what? VCs are human beings too, right? We all like to hear a great story. And I, I mentioned it before. Now, ho hopefully you're not telling too much fiction though, right? The second point I want to talk about that that's sort of related to that fiction part is make sure you will be seen as trustworthy. So, so check your facts, qualify your statements. Don't hide risks or challenges. In fact, even highlight them, right? So, so nobody believes in cakewalks. And, and you should identify the challenges that you, at least the ones you see. And that gives you an excellent opportunity to have some further profound discussions, not stay on the surface. 
but really, you know, dig deeper in a, in the second or third conversation. And I think, you know, VCs really like that. And, and then maybe as a, as a third point, be open to input and coaching. And, and this is not about VCs trying to control you. So, you know, be open so they can tell you what to do, but it's about how well you are able to pick up valuable signals all around you from customers, employees, suppliers, advisors, et cetera, and then process those signals for your future course of action. Uh, so I, I guess those three things can get you a long way. Wonderful. Most impactful book ever and best book you have read in the last six months and why? You know, I'm old, so I, a lot of <laughs> books have influenced my thinking. I think the one that most quickly comes to mind is, is Il Gatto Pardo, uh, in English, The Leopard. The Leopard. Uh, by, by Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa, an, an old book already. It's uh, an Italian novel from more than 60 years ago. And the book chronicles the change of life in, in society in Sicily uh, during a Risorgimento. So that, that's the period in the 19th century in which the Italian nation was built. So a lot of nation building was going on during that time in Europe. And, and the unit of observation in this novel is a, is a noble family, the, the Salina. But more generally, uh, the, the novel is about sweeping change. Sweeping change and uh, perspectives one can take when faced with that sweeping change. And, and I, I promise I'll make it short now. The main message articulated by the main character, Don Fabrizio uh, himself, is if we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. And this has become sort of a mantra for me. Obviously, that's an oxymoron almost, right? But if you lift it on a higher level, it, it's clear, right? So uh, we, we, we all have to change and move on and we cannot stay where we are. Uh, and then you asked me about a more recent book. So, so late this summer, I, I read a treatise by Bruno Mathais. Uh, so Bruno is a former state secretary for the government of Portugal. Uh, now he's a political analyst and author in the U.S. And uh, the title of the book is uh, History Has Begun, The Birth of a New America. And I have to tell you, the, the title is totally misleading. It's raising the wrong kinds of expectations. It's, it's not a late reply to Fukuyama's end of history. It's also not giving you revolutionary insights into the current state of affairs in the U.S. However, it, it is a, a very, very good critical review of European views and perspectives on the United States, uh, practically all the way since Alexis de Tocqueville in the, in the 19th century, right? The, the, the French writer who looked at uh, the U.S. from a, from a European perspective. And uh, it really changed the way I looked at America, that, reading that book. This is, uh, yeah, this is wonderful. Thanks a lot for the um, recommendations. I can't tell you how happy I am when someone recommends me this type of books with such a fervor and passion. I, I very much look forward actually to, to reading them, in particular, like when they're not necessarily connected with tech and VC or non-fiction. Non, non I mean, like the treaty kind of seems like a, a historical one, but the leopard also, it seems one that it's a novel, but that also presents historical facts. Did I get that right? That's what I love about the book. It has so many levels, right? It has this uh, historical level. So I, I like history. So uh, seeing, you know, in the plot, how, you know, Risorgimento is happening, you know, how, you know, 
different changes in Italian uh, society coming about. And then you know, on the level of the family, looking at how characters develop, develop during that time, that it's a time of stress, of change, and, uh, and then the higher meaning of all of that, uh, uh, which then is you know, expressly formulated in this one, one key sentence of, of the novel. Super. Uh, thank you very much for that. The next question is most thoughtful investor and or entrepreneur that you have met and admire. I'm fortunate to to know a lot of investors in the tech and VC scene and, uh, and many of them I, I do admire. But I'm not going to talk about one of them today. Um, there's another one I'd like to mention. Uh, in, in Munich, where I live, I met a developer and investor in, uh, in residential real estate. And, and he really impressed me the way he builds and maintains relationships with the community in which he operates. So uh, you know, in his area, an urban area, uh, there are hardly any plots available that haven't been developed before or uh, you know, that are not inhabited at the time he finds them. I also have to uh, mention, you know, in Munich, many or most properties are sold through, through agents in, in auction-style processes. But so far, he has completely bypassed uh, those those auction processes with his sort of long term perspective, understanding the community and people, uh, developing relationships with owners and potential sellers very early on, but also with the tenants, getting to know their needs, uh, developing a vision for the properties uh, to take care of those needs, and as a result, um, uh, those sellers are often then not using agents because of that relationship, but sell directly to him. And in turn, obviously, then he can use that vision and takes care of them and, and so on. Now, I have to say, if you're looking at investing, there's one downside to that. It's not a very scalable approach, right? It takes <laughs> a lot of effort and time, but it's very lucrative for him. You know, he doesn't have to make money for a lot of people. He just, you know, needs to make money for himself and, and very, very few co-investors he's He's bringing on board with him. I must admit uh, there, is a, there is a thought to the example here because I believe there's also a lesson for this in venture capital. Um, if, if we're looking at, at venture capital today, obviously one way to make money is scaling funds, making, making them larger, scaling investment teams. And, and we're seeing that with some of the very large players today that are almost building index funds of the most promising tech companies. But there's also still a, a profitable niche for investors that know their space as well, their ecosystems, and, and that take the time to build and maintain relationships um, uh, with current and with future entrepreneurs. So they may not be able to do a lot of deals, but, uh, but they also have, to some extent, a, a, a privileged access. Interesting. You seem like the type of learner that takes a lot of learnings from different aspects or industries and put them to work in investment. Um, I guess the best thinkers and investors, they do take a lot of learnings from uh, all the walks of life. Uh, Charlie Munger actually comes to mind how he takes the learnings from biology and how different viruses or microbes expand and the reasons behind it. And he, he translates that into, into investment. You seen the, the same type of learner. Uh, thank you very much for, for taking the time. It's, it's been a pleasure. Maybe like a, a last question. What is the best way for entrepreneurs to reach out to you or to early bird? May sound very simple. Uh, just go to our website. Um, we have a section with, uh, email addresses uh, so you can reach each of our teams, the Digital West team, the Digital East team, the health team uh, directly. And don't worry, people are actually looking at these on a daily basis and 
we make sure that uh, you know we we can put our best foot forward you know, once once it's there. Obviously, if you know someone who knows me or one of my partners or team members personally, um, you can also use that for introductions. Um, I think in any way that's convenient for you, and, and we're really interested. Wonderful, Roland. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, very much appreciate it. Well, thank you very much.